the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Acts. Lord would not minister these things to Paul if he weren't wrestling with the things that the Lord is addressing here. And I point that out because sometimes when we think about the heroes of the Bible, and Paul certainly would fall in that category as far as I'm concerned, we sometimes get the illusion that these great heroes of the faith never, you know, had any personal fears or worries or struggles, you know, other than the fact that obviously Paul was many times persecuted and beaten. And But I mean, I love the way it starts out where the Lord just says to him, don't be afraid. Do you ever feel like a fish out of water? Sometimes you're in a setting that feels completely out of character for you, and it can be hard to want to be immersed in that place that feels foreign to what you're comfortable with. It's reasonable to think that the Apostle Paul would have felt this way in the city of Corinth. Today, Pastor Gary teaches about this city and how it must have been for Paul to live there, totally out of place. Likely, he experienced fear, but God met him there and comforted him. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Acts chapter 18 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Paul is nearing the end of his second missionary journey. The years are roughly 50 to 53 AD, where Paul is traveling through most of uh, Turkey and Europe, and he's on over into Greece now. Chapter 17, he stops in Athens. He reasons with the the Greek scholars of his day, uh, the men of the Areopagus. Some of your translations might say Mars Hill. This was a hill upon which Ares or Mars, the god of war, uh, was glorified and worshipped. And it was also the place where the elders of the city of Athens would gather and meet. Athens was considered the philosophical and intellectual center of the world. And so Paul reasons with them based on their own um, misguided uh, untruth about multiple gods. The Greeks even had a particular statue to an unknown god just in case. They just wanted to make sure they didn't leave out any of the gods that they uh, might have accidentally uh, overlooked. Paul uses that to speak about the true and living God. He says, I want to tell you about this unknown God you don't have a name for. This is the God who created the heavens and the earth. And he reasons with them from the standpoint, not really of Scripture, because these are Greek Gentiles. They don't understand Scripture. They've not been exposed to Scripture. They're not Jews. They're Gentiles. So he uses even their own culture as an entry point to share uh, his faith with them. And it's a good reminder to us that not everybody's going to have 
an understanding about Scripture. And when, when we look for opportunities to be used by the Lord to share our faith, we have to look for the entry points based on where is that person? What is their life about? What is their worldview? What is their culture? And try to speak their language and help them to understand the truth of Jesus, but using the entry point of wherever they are as an individual and then bringing them to the place where they can understand who Christ is. So Paul uses a different method in Acts 17. And some, some criticize his method in Acts 17 uh, because it didn't have, quote, much fruit. But it does say at the end of chapter 17 that there were some who believed. Uh, in verse, um, the end of chapter 17, verse 34 says, A few men became followers of Paul and believed. They believed in Jesus. And among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. So there was fruit. You know, I don't know how people are supposed to measure fruit. I mean, there are people getting saved here. It's not a numerical value. It's, it's uh, uh, qualitative, not quantitative. And so Paul ministers in Athens, and then he's going to move here in chapter 18 to Corinth. Corinth is about 48 miles west of Athens, so we're still talking about Greece. And uh, he's going to meet a few people here, and he's going to uh, share the Lord, and a church is going to be developed here in Corinth as a result of his ministry. So let me read the first four verses out of chapter 18, and then we'll back up and, and look at these first four verses. It says this, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. So let's pause there again. I'm going to throw up the big map here of the, uh, Paul's uh, second missionary journey. We're talking about Corinth. A little bit of background on the city of Corinth where Athens was the uh, philosophical intellectual center of the world at this time. Corinth is the commercial trade center of the world at this time. It, had, uh, it was a port city with two harbors. It was the capital of the Roman province at this particular time, the province of Macedonia. And the population in the first century AD, which is when Paul was here, was around 700,000. But it's interesting that there were twice as many slaves as there were free men. There were about 200,000 Roman citizens, men and women, and about 500,000 slaves. Remember, Rome was guilty. The Roman Empire, part of its collapse was due in large part to they had enslaved people. And they were, they were about slavery as a, as a system that propped up the, the, the empire economically. And it was a horrible abuse of people, but that's what they were known for. And it partly led to, their, to the collapse of the Roman Empire. Uh, also about Corinth, uh, and this is significant, there was the Temple of Aphrodite and 11 other temples located there. But Aphrodite had uh, the most effect upon the city of Corinth because Aphrodite was the goddess of love and sexual pleasure and there were a thousand, history tells us, there were a thousand male and female temple prostitutes who worked at the temple of Aphrodite there in Corinth. Again, there were 11 other temples, but this particular one affected the moral climate of, or the lack thereof, of Corinth. This is the Vegas of the day. 
And what stays in Corinth, you know, happens in Corinth, stays in Corinth, except that we're reading about it today now, you know, 2,000 years later. Uh, but, you know, this is a city that was known for a lot of things, architecture, the Corinthian columns, uh, Corinthian bronze. Uh, but what they were most known for is their immorality. It became a center of immorality and sexuality. And I put in parenthesis there, see Romans 1, because the book of Romans, Paul wrote from Corinth. And if you want to take some time uh, to just, well, if you want to glance at Romans chapter 1 right now, but if you, I'm just not going to read through the whole thing, obviously, but if you, if you notice about Romans chapter 1, that Paul is writing from Corinth, and probably what we read in Romans 1 is largely a reflection of life in Corinth. Because he speaks in Romans chapter 1 about how, in verse 18, the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. And he's living in the center of it when he's writing this. Who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them. And uh, down in verse uh, 24 of Romans 1, he says, Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Talks about how they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who was forever praised. You know, it's it's. Listen, we're, our culture is not too far removed from Romans chapter one. There is a tremendous upside down emphasis on creation rather than Creator in our world. Have you noticed? Everything is about you know. I'm not the world's best recycler, all right, because I just, I, I'm tired of having to separate my glass bottles and plastic bottles. And, and don't judge me, because there's times that you shove your plastic milk carton in the regular trash can and you hope nobody knows about it. But I'm just saying, our world has just become so, and I understand, take care of the planet, it's God's green earth, I get that to a point. But man, we're, the, the earth has become like a center of worship, where it's all about recycling, it's all about saving the spotted owl, it's all about, you know, the rainforest, and like, okay, to a point, but all the while that we're concerned about that, we're killing our unborn babies. So there's this whole lopsided view of life and what is important and go green and energy, all this kind of stuff and carbon footprint. I don't know what carbon, I don't know what my carbon footprint is. It's all going to burn, people. One day it's all going to burn. It's going to be a huge carbon footprint one day when the whole world goes up in flames like a marshmallow on the end of a stick over a campfire. That's what's going to happen. But anyway, be that as it may, I'm not saying abuse the world, but just recognize that it's not about creation. It's about the creator. And Paul even says, listen, you know what's going on in his day? People are more concerned about worshiping the created things rather than the creator. We've not come very far. In fact, we've even expanded on it even in our own day. He goes on further in Romans 1 to talk about the kinds of disgraceful sexual behavior. In verse 26, he says, because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their perversion. Again, not far removed. But Paul is living in the center of this in Corinth. It is largely influenced because of the worship of Aphrodite. And as a result, Corinth is a very hedonistic, very perverted, very immoral place. So if you want to go back later and read all of Romans chapter 1, you get an idea of the kind of culture he's living in. And I think you'll realize, again, as I pointed out, not too different from our own culture in many ways. Uh, Back here in in, uh, Acts chapter uh, 18... So this is the culture, and this is what uh, Paul is 
living in at the time here. And we are introduced here in the first few verses of chapter 18 to a husband and wife named Aquila and Priscilla. And this is what we basically know about them from the first couple of verses, that he was Jewish, because it says in verse 2 that there Paul met a Jew named Aquila. But it doesn't say that Priscilla was Jewish, so we're not sure if she was. Um, What is more likely, though, based on her name, Priscilla, or in some translations it says Prisca, Uh, That is a name that was given if you were born into uh, high nobility. So the fact that she bears this name is an indication of high social standing. And it implies in the text that they are both Jews who are Christians. They believe in Christ as Messiah because we know from history that only Jewish Christians were expelled from Rome and from Italy uh, under the reign of, of Emperor Claudius. Because it, history records that he got disturbed by how bold the Christians were in sharing their faith. And he saw it as a constant uh, struggle and strife within Italy. And so he expelled all the Jews who were Christians from, from Italy, from Rome in particular. And so that's the inference that Aquila and Priscilla were probably both believers. They end up here then in Corinth. After leaving Rome, they come here to Corinth in Greece. It tells us that they were tent makers because it tells us that Paul joins with them. In the day, most of the times that people were in, quote, full-time ministry, they also had a, they were considered bivocational in many ways because there was a trade or there was a skill that they also used to make a living. It was a rare thing to see them in full-time, supported, financially supported ministry, although we're going to see that that happens here for Paul. But he is a tent maker by trade. Probably that word means one who is a worker of leather. And so he finds them. Now, did he know them before? Did he just happen to meet them? They're just strangers, and they struck up a conversation. We don't have any background on it. But he comes in contact with them. He finds out they are tent makers like he is. And so he stays with them, verse 3 says, and he worked with them. And this is a couple who we're going to see a little bit later in this chapter. They're going to end up discipling a guy by the name of Apollos. And they are also mentioned the very last letter that Paul writes before he is beheaded, before he's martyred for his faith. In 2 Timothy 4.19, he makes a reference to Aquila and Priscilla, thanking them for their ministry. So we're introduced to them. And then one other thing here in the first couple of verses, and I mentioned this word last time we were in chapter 17, because it's used four times between chapter 17 and 18. It's, it's this word reasoned. Paul says in verse 4, every Sabbath, it says about Paul in verse 4, that every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. And that Greek word is dialegomei, meaning to say thoroughly or to converse. It's where we get our English word dialogue. So this is where he is, Corinth. Uh, This is what he's doing. He's reasoning first in the Jewish synagogue. And he meets Aquila and Priscilla. So that's the background now to his entrance into Corinth. Uh, He's at first by himself, but it tells us now, read on with me in verse 5, that when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. 
So here come Silas and Timothy, traveling companions of Paul. They're joining him here. They've come from Macedonia, and they've come with financial support. Now, how do we know this? This is what he's referring to here when it says that, that Paul now devoted himself exclusively to preaching. The meaning is he didn't have to be a part of the tent-making business anymore because now he was financially supported here with offerings that came by way of Timothy and Silas such that he could devote himself exclusively and entirely his time to preaching and to ministry. Now, we know this because when you compare Scripture with Scripture, we get the rest of the story. And by the way, the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible. So in the margin of your Bible, right there at verse 5, you can write 2 Corinthians 11.9. 2 Corinthians 11.9. Let me read it to you. In writing to the church at Corinth, which is the church that's going to emerge from his time here in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians, Paul's writing to the church at Corinth. He says in chapter 11, verse 9, And when I was with you and needed something, I was not a burden to anyone. For, listen to this, for the brothers, referring to Silas and Timothy, who came from Macedonia, that's what we just read, supplied what I needed. I have kept myself from being a burden to you in any way and will continue to do so. So in his letter back to the Corinthians much later here in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, I never wanted to be a burden to to you Corinthian people. I didn't want you to have to support me. So I was a tent maker until the brothers came from Macedonia and they brought offerings with them. When you couple that with Philippians 4.15, Philippians 4.15, he commends the church at Philippi for sending offerings by way of Silas and Timothy for his support. So when you put it all together, 2 Corinthians 11.9, Philippians 4.15, and back here in Acts 18 verse 5, what we learn is that Paul is able to devote himself exclusively to the ministry because his financial support has come by way of the church of Philippi through Silas and Timothy to him there in Corinth. Uh, and, and let me just say to you, it is, it is a difficult thing. I know some pastors who are bivocational because their churches aren't large enough to support them full time. And it is a very difficult thing to work a full-time job and then to also pastor a church. And I'm very thankful that since the the beginning of our church, uh, the church has been able to support me and my family. And so it's it's a wonderful thing that we enjoy because I don't know how pastors do it. It's a, it's a very difficult thing, a very strenuous thing to have a full-time job and also to pastor a congregation. Paul is talking here about how it was wonderful not to be a burden to anybody because offerings came for my support so I could devote myself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. That's the way verse 5 ends. Now circle the word Christ. It is the Greek word Christos. Spelled just like it is with an O-S on the end of it. Christos. And it, it is the same word in Hebrew as Mashiach, which is where we get our English word Messiah. So whenever Jesus is referred to as Christ, the word Christos and Mashiach for Messiah translates anointed one. So Jesus is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is the Christ. All those words mean the same thing. Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Paul is using scripture, because he's in the synagogue, to reason with the Jews from their own scriptures, what we have in our Bibles as our Old Testament, about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these messianic prophecies. He is the anointed one. He is the Christ. Verse 6 says, 
But when the Jews opposed Paul, because not everybody likes what he's saying, and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And that's what he does. Verse 7 says, And then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justice, a worshiper of God. So here's this guy living right next to the, to the synagogue. Verse 8, Crispus, the synagogue ruler. Okay, this is Crispus. This is not Crispix. That's a cereal. All right? This is not Rice Crispus treats. That's something else entirely. This is Crispus, the synagogue ruler. And his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. So now there's some fruit to the ministry here. Whereas at first, Paul is shunned by the Jews. He goes right next door. He says, all right, fine. I'm going to reach out to the Greek Gentiles who are living here in Corinth. And there's already a guy here, Titius Justice, who's a worshiper. We don't know if he... Um, you know, that that means he's a believer, but he's a worshiper, Crispus and his entire household, and, and many of the Corinthians who heard uh, believed and were baptized. And verse 9 says, One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, keep on speaking, do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. Now, this is pretty unusual for him to stay there 18 months when usually he would plan to work, stay a few months or even less than that and move on. But the Lord visits him here in a a vision. And as a result of this vision, Paul extends his stay beyond what he normally would. But I want you to notice that the Lord would not minister these things to Paul if he weren't wrestling with the things that the Lord is addressing here. And I point that out because sometimes when we think about the heroes of the Bible, and Paul certainly would fall in that category as far as I'm concerned, we sometimes get the illusion that these great heroes of the faith never, you know, had any personal fears or worries or struggles, you know, other than the fact that obviously Paul was many times persecuted and beaten. And, but, I mean, I love the way it starts out where the Lord just says to him, don't be afraid. Because what it tells us is that he was afraid. I mean, if if Paul weren't afraid, the Lord would not have shown up and said, now don't be afraid, because that would have been a useless waste of God's time. God knows that he was in fear, and perfect love drives out fear. The Bible says that God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and of a sound mind. Fear is not of the Lord, and yet fear is a very real emotion. It can be a very debilitating emotion. It can be something that many of us struggle with. And the first words from the Lord here, do not fear. Someone once counted this. I've never substantiated it. But someone once said that there are 365 times in the Bible where it says, do not fear. That's one for every day of every year of your life. And here's the encouragement from the Lord to to Paul. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Don't be silent. What's he afraid about? Because at different places where Paul has gone, he's been beaten and left for dead. Remember the whole scene in Lystra on the first missionary journey? It's probably why Paul had an ongoing problem with his vision. Because he was probably, when he was left for dead and stoned uh, by the people who didn't like him, he has sustained such injuries that it probably affected his eyesight for the rest of his life. And he's probably afraid that if he stays here at Corinth, people are going to beat him up and try to kill him. And worse, maybe even succeed in killing him. So I just love 
the realness here of what the Lord is saying. Paul's got to be afraid. Paul doesn't want to stick around here. And I love also the comfort God says, because I have many people in this city. God has many of his people in every city. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hammer. Pastor Gary's been going through the book of Acts. If you missed any part of this message, you can hear it again on our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. You might want to download our mobile app so you have these teachings with you on the go. That way, you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. Simply look under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be happy to meet you. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other info on our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of Acts. Keep reading on your own in this book and discover so many inspiring and motivating things. Pastor Gary will continue teaching about the amazing acts done by God and His Spirit on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection. J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.